Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller, sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly. Hey, hey, Bobby. What's up, Brian? We are on part three of series 16, Bobby. We're talking about deals and lessons learned, and really this has kind of evolved into our progression through technology sales, the early companies that we worked for, the lessons that we learned through those days, the the good deals, the hard losses, the, the good wins. Um, and today we're really going to focus more on the best practices. So we talked about in the last episode how the companies we worked for, the first goal was to nail that day job, is to be kind of the, the top AE on the team, to be an innovator. And part of that is to is to have best practices and share those best practices. And we've got a whole series on this, so we're not going to spend a ton of time uh, going through all those all those um, uh, you know best practices and things that we've shared. But it is a really core important thing to not only nail that day job, but also help your peers be successful too. No doubt. And I know we've talked about best practices and we've talked about sharing and other things, but these are, these are, I call them four to five things that we did in our career that I know set us apart. We know set us apart. I don't know if we knew it in real time, but it, it all led to sharing some of our quality work with others and we were recognized for it. And we hope that these examples will spur your thoughts and things that you can replicate in your day jobs that'll make you stand out and make you hopefully progress in your career, both as a tech seller and maybe as a leader one day. And, and kind of where we are in the life cycle of this series is we, we talked about first in the first episode, kind of how we got into tech sales, what that early job was, some of the, the struggles there. Part two of that was kind of getting into more professional sales for both of us. That was our, that was my first job at at soft choice and then my my move to to microsoft uh, we'll talk about the best practices here today and then next week we'll talk bobby about more more value selling so I, I think early in your career i think the focus is kind of it's probably more focused on volume of deals you, you know you're kind of doing maybe smaller deals but you're doing a higher variety of them and you're getting a ton of experience and then and then oftentimes as the career progresses you're working on bigger deals um, you're working on, on, on bigger value sales. You're working with different members of the business. And we'll talk about that next week. Yeah. I think at Microsoft and even my first job, your first job, all the jobs in between, we thought we were selling some big deals and they were big deals. I think the gap and what we're going to talk about next week really is the, the difference between reconstructing something that someone's already going to buy and like changing yeah. their mind altogether right when we started and 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 both of us were fairly new to the professional sales world at Sparkham you, you were selling custom apps that people knew they had an idea but didn't know what it was going to take and those projects were sometimes seven figures and that you can't show them anything. I mean, you can show them some mock-ups and stuff, but you can't prove to them that this is going to change their world. And that's a whole nother level of selling um, that I don't think we both knew just how hard it would be. Yeah. So if you, if you're in product sales today, or if you're in resales today and you want to make a move to professional services, I think next week will be interesting. And while that's not going to be the the full episode, we'll, we'll do probably a full series or at least a couple of listeners choices on product sales versus um, services sales. And in fact, we've got a, a guest speaker that will join us for some of that at some point. 
Um, we are going to talk about it a bit uh, next week. So if you're interested in that, join us. But again, today we're going to focus on sharing best practices. Bobby, I think the first one for me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll do first and then we can kind of go around Robin. This is one that remains for me today. I'm still obsessive about this. Um, and it, it was, the format can vary. I, I developed a very early format to this and it's all about the evaluation plan. And the evaluation plan, of course, wasn't, my invention uh, would, would never claim that. It's been going on for as long as sales has been going on. But the what, what made, you know, as we talked about kind of our first big professional job, and for me that was, that was Microsoft being an account executive, and that's a situation where you're talking to a ton of customers every single week. And I think what worked well for me there is that I met with the customers. Uh, I met with as many customers as I could every week. And I put together a very tangible, actionable plan uh, for every one of those deals. And it took a heavy amount of stress off of me. And as I'd work with my peers very early on, there was always a lot of stress about, man, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know that this deal is going to get done by the quarter end. And oftentimes that was because while they had done all the right sales things, the right sales motions, they met with the right people, they delivered the right demos, they got the deployment figures together, they, they were doing all the right things for sure. But when the next step is ambiguous to the prospect, let alone to us, it it makes the deal that much more difficult to, to earn. So I, I think the big best practice early sharing that I did was kind of constructed out uh, what what everyone will kind of laugh about that knows me well is the follow-up and next steps email. And that's, that's an email that I still send today, whether I have a, a one-on-one with a, an executive at the company I'm at at Workday or... I'm meeting with a prospect. I send that follow-up and next steps email. And that's all about making very tangible next steps uh, to, to push the engagement further. And isn't it also about the customer knowing what you're trying to accomplish? Um, I, we call it an evaluation plan. We've talked about reverse timelines, work back plans, follow-up plans. Um, this really is the uh, negotiation of working together. This is the, we are going to play ball here. I'm going to try and sell you this or you need help and I'm going to work with you. We're going to collectively agree we're working on solving your business problem together. And when you create that plan, which in today's world is normally in an email or maybe a document that's also sent via an email, you create a timeline. I think timeline is very critical to this part of this um, that I think people struggle with. And I mean, maybe we could give everybody an example, Brian, something that doesn't have to be uh, necessarily tech sales related. But if uh, yeah. you're a cyclist, if I had a nice bike, a nicer bike than the one you had, which is impossible, uh, but if, let's just assume that I did and I wanted to sell okay. it to you and you wanted, you were in the market for buying a bike, we could exchange a thousand phone calls about bike and price and the age of the tires and how many miles are on the chain, et cetera. But there's... There's a way I could understand if you were really serious and we could start maybe with a price or we could start with the quality of the bike and say, okay, are you committed to buying this bike in the month of July? Right. I mean, that, that starts the timeline conversation. What else would you put in an evaluate quote unquote evaluation plan for, uh, if you were in my shoes as the seller of the bike, what would, what else would you try and get timeline based maybe in that example? Yeah, what I would be looking for if I was being proactive, uh, a proactive seller, if I was in your shoes, the one selling the bike, I would be looking at the buyer 
in trying to interpret and guess what steps they might need to evaluate whether or not the bike was a good fit or not for them. So maybe there's some sizing things that have to go on. But that's what so I, I would try thinking. to put myself so if I'm like seven foot tall yeah. and you're not seven foot tall. There's certain ranges that bikes will work and not work. But if it was a 56 centimeter bike, maybe we're on the right track. Right. Yeah. And I think what people worry about, and this is the pushback I'd always get early on. They'd say, Oh, it's, you don't understand. Like I, th- this is a complex deal. And, and my, my point, and then, you know, they, they would say like, you, you know, a, a eval plan works until you get punched in the mouth. And my, my point to them was always, yeah, but you're not getting punched in the mouth yet. So how do you know whether or not this is going to be a, a good fit or not? Because you've not even been punched in the mouth. So that, so what I love about the evaluation plan and why this is always a, a, a good next step and it's something that I helped uh, other tech sellers, whether they were early, mid, or even senior tech sellers, is that the evaluation plan. When you, when you, Bobby, when you say with the bike, are you gonna, you know, are you gonna buy in in July? And if we're if we're gonna do this in July, so that you can pick up the the bike in early August, the first week of August, then we need to do these steps. You need to get fitted. You know, we need to, you need to, to evaluate if if that brand is the right brand. I may tell you, well, Bobby, I'm out. I'm out. I'm on vacation like the second week of July, and then I'm busy the third week of July. So at least you've been punched in the mouth to know like. Now, now we can now we can start working on a realistic plan. Yeah, and do you have kids? So I, I, is school starting? You know, there's yeah. a million variables that create timeline issues for tech sellers all the time. But if you did this, they would be brought up. You would be punched in the mouth. Um, yeah. On the bike example, I'm thinking pedals. Do you have pedals, or do you want the pedals? Do, can I grow the deal by selling you my pedals? Probably I want to keep my pedals because those are for my shoes, and I don't want to get rid of those right. pedals. So. Um, how do we put that into the deal? I mean, it's a, my mind's just racing on how this evaluation plan, even just for selling a bike to another individual could be a much bigger, more complex thing, but it is, it is the roots of what you're talking about from an evaluation plan. And just a quick plug on it. The fact is if you, if you are stressing about a deal and timelines and everything else, the one way to, to very quickly get some comfort or at least really know where you stand is, is block off two hours on your calendar today and write out that evaluation plan and get it out to your customer today. And I'll tell you what, you will sleep better tonight. And if you don't hear from your customer, and then uh, that's going to be a big problem. But the thing is, is just create some action for Monday. By Monday, we'll exchange this email, yeah. this thing. You'll send me a spec on the product or a spec on the project or a project manager I can work with or an executive sponsor's name. Something really simple that shows some commitment, and then you'll feel a lot better if you get to step two and step three, and then things adjust, and you're still talking and working together. That's how you know you're really in an engagement that's going to bear fruit for you and your company. Sounds good. Bobby, why don't you uh, take us through one of your best practice sharing? Yeah, this one I worked on with a close friend of ours. I owe him a follow-up phone call because we've been playing phone tag lately. Um, but one night I was sitting in my recliner accessing, I'll say eight different tools at Microsoft, plugging in the same contract number, uh, in a web page that I kept noticing, you know, the link at the top had a big long link with that, um, contract number in it or that customer's, uh, master ID or, and I just thought this is stupid. He was a developer. I knew he had some development in the past and I, I thought, man, how can we write a little script that would, 
just open all these tabs together, right? If there's 60,000 sellers at Microsoft doing the same thing I'm doing, how many millions of dollars in man times being wasted uh, by accessing all these tools? And of course, master data management's a big problem, and it's a huge problem for big, big companies. But long story short, he was able to quickly write a little VB script that opened up about seven tabs in Internet Explorer with all these pages in it. And then I, I thought of these other things we could do and these other things. And what ended up happening was we wrote a real application. He wrote a real application on uh, in Visual Basic back in those days, VB6 at the time, I think. And it ended up doing a lot more. Like it would open up, I'll say, maybe 20 data sources and some other web-based apps that you could get an entire profile of the customer and all their agreements and previous history, buying history, contract numbers, reseller information, uh, contacts out of sales, you know, at the time out of CRM, I think we were still using Siebel back in those days, believe it or not. Siebel, that's and, right. Uh, this quick access tool took off. It became very popular. You can, again, imagine that every constructed deal that people were working on, they were going to these 20 web pages, typing in these same numbers. And they could put these three or four customer numbers in this tool called we we branded Quick Access. You could push the button and it would open up all those tools and uh, saved millions of man hours. And of course, we were recognized. Many people at corporate found it very interesting. It's one of those simple, simple things that you go back and go, how did no one else think of this? Um, but it's because they weren't putting themselves in the salespeople's shoes. And we didn't ask to be paid for it. We didn't get any bonuses or benefits from it. But what it did was it showed people our operational awareness. It showed people that we were thinking about the bigger picture because we shared it broadly. And this was a tool that ended up being used worldwide because the tools were really the same um, and just in local languages. So it, it was a really big deal. And by sharing it, I think what was best for us was we got to meet dozens of people that were really important in sales, right? So I think it helped our mm -hmm. career that they saw us, they saw our work, they saw we shared our work, um, and it was a big, big deal. So kudos to Jonathan Schwartz for that tool and um, all of the good that it did for many years before they started consolidating some of those tools. I think the key that you mentioned there is – and we have probably nothing but salespeople listening to this podcast, so they'll appreciate this, is that if you can save salespeople time and build a tool or a collection of something that saves them time, it, it, is, uh, it, it will take off. It will catch fire if you can save salespeople time. That's what they're all looking for. Like You look at all these new startup companies like Clary and all these uh, Salesforce add-on tools, Companies are investing millions of dollars in software applications and collection tools and aggregators to save salespeople time. And sometimes it may not feel like that, right? When we work for these sales organizations, we feel like we're the one doing all the heavy lifting. But the fact is there are ton a huge ecosystem of companies that are designed around saving uh, salespeople time. And this is a great example of that, the quick access tool. And whether, you know, maybe you don't have a, a friend that has developer chops to, to write some code, you know, writing writing custom code and having applications installed on PCs is a little bit more difficult than it, now than it was, you know, five or ten years ago. But what if you had a collection of the best references, you know, in your region? What if you had a, a list of, uh, of business outcomes that other companies had achieved by deploying your, your company's software or buying your company's uh, products? 
What if you went to the top salespeople in the company and said, what, what does your sales presentation look like? And you collected all that stuff. I think the key is here with quick access and so many of these things is how can you help other salespeople be better at their job? And if you can do those things, Bobby, to your point, you show operational excellence and you show that you have good business sense and good business awareness. Amen to that. And and the thing there is you can't do, you can't do half-ass work, right? You can't do, you can't just cut and paste from five presentations. You've got to make it better. You got to make it something that people want to use and that people want to celebrate that they're using it. And then I'd say to Brian's points there, you got to give those people credit. You, you putting it together and sharing it is a big freaking deal. But if you don't give those people that really built the content the first pass to give those credits where they're due, it could backfire in a big, big way for you for sure. Um, and that's why I called out Jonathan, right? Because he did all the heavy lifting. I just had an idea. Um, and I, if I was in his shoes, my feelings would be hurt. So share the credit where credit where credit is due. The second one for me that was a highlight for my early career was uh, around cost analysis. So we, we touched on this very briefly, but one of the big things that we did at Microsoft is we helped upgrade companies from one contract set to another but it led to a pretty big reoccurring contract that actually now drives what's effectively a trillion dollar valuation for Microsoft, which is their their enterprise revenue. Uh, and that was that was cost analysis that we did I, a six year cost analysis. So what I what the the business problem I was looking to solve for for what started off as just myself was helping businesses. You know, at Microsoft, there's a number of ways that you can sell licenses. And it's probably all changed today, so this is probably dated information. But there were a number, a number of ways that you could license technology. And what I helped companies do was rather than forwarding over six quotes to them, which I certainly made the mistake of doing early on in my career, is I built out a pretty comprehensive cost analysis spreadsheet. And it's again, it's something I do today for my own personal uh, net worth. It's something I do for customers still today as recently as last week was helping customers understand a number of different approaches or options as it as it comes to, to licensing technology. And the aim there was to really simplify the decision-making process for them and to help them clearly understand what the path looks like over time. It, it's go, going back to your example of selling me a bike, Bobby. It's it's helping if, if you were to just over the phone tell me, okay, well, yeah, we can do it with the wheels or we can do it without the wheels or without the pedals or with the pedals. People that don't ride bikes think it's probably crazy to sell a bike without pedals or wheels, but... That's a real thing for those that aren't in cycling. Um, but, but Bobby, what I would expect from you as a good seller would be to send me some sort of spreadsheet or detailed email afterwards saying, here's what we talked about. Here's, here's kind of the option with wheels, without wheels. If you were to go with these wheels, um, you know, they retail for this. But, you know, since I've ridden on them for a year, I'm going to sell them to you for why. And here's the pedals that I use. I'm not really interested in getting rid of these, but for X, I'll, I'll get rid of them. It's just really clearly and concising laying out that analysis for it. And I think so many people are see themselves as so busy, they're afraid to spend that time necessary to really clearly express what the options are. And it goes back to that evaluation plan. If you can help the prospect or customer fully understand what their options are on a single, very simple, put-together Excel spreadsheet and tie that into an evaluation plan, you will move the business forward. And for me, this was a big personal win, and it was something that we used across the, the South for Microsoft. 
I'm sure I've used many of your tools and, and it is something that it's one of those things that I can't get people to always understand, but I would spend 10 hours on my first cost analysis tool because I know it's going to save me a hundred down the road. Um, once I figure out the math, once I figure out how to create the value, once I figure out how to tell the story with, with numbers and years in the future, with consolidating contracts or with give backs and things very much often happened in the Dell EMC world where we would buy back old gear and give credits on maintenance and all that stuff. Customers do it once people, we do it weekly, daily, hopefully as often as we can. And you spend all that time building a fancy tool like that to save yourself time, not to reinvent the wheel each time and make it better, improve upon it, share it, and do it over and over and over again. It'll save you tons of time. It'll benefit your teams tremendously. And much like the going back to the bike example, I hear people all the time not knowing, well, let's use cost analysis and the eval plan together here, not knowing how to create that impending event. Well, if I'm selling you a bike and you have interest, I can easily tell you, Brian, I'm going to let you have exclusive rights to come look at it, take it for a bike ride, whatever you want to do, but that deal for use closing on, I don't know, maybe the, the, the 15th of this month. And I'm going to put it back out on the market. Well, you have till the 15th. You, I've created a pending event, whether you like it or not. Um, you might also tell me I'm not going to get my tax return until the 29th. So I won't pay you till the 30th. And that's my choice as the seller, whether I want to have that, um, so combination of the cost analysis and the eval plan, you can create those dates along with using your pricing strategy to help drive some of that stuff. And it gets, like we said before, it gets the ball rolling. It causes that punch in the mouth. I'm selling one of my rental homes right now, Bobby, and and it's always a fun process of selling a home. And and it, I, I very, I had a very specific evaluation plan even for the buyer of my property. I'm selling it direct without a realtor and. So I'm effectively the realtor here, and I had very specific terms and dates and when things needed to happen. And while we had a phone conversation, you know, kind of man-to-man on the phone conversation, there was still a follow-up note that went through to very clearly express the, the value of the home, the offer details, the conditions of those offer details, when we need to execute, the penalty for not executing by those dates. That's before we even got to an attorney. We were talking about those kind of things. And... And then, like, look, if then I don't have to pay $650 for an attorney for this guy if he's not going to end up buying the house, right? Like, it's before we even get to contracts, we're getting into some of these details because I'd rather get punched in the mouth now over an email that I spent an hour putting together uh, rather than chasing this all the way down just to understand that we had a, a misunderstanding down the road. No doubt, no doubt. So let me talk about one of my last best practices that I did, and... This was a combination of sales, partnering, and and we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but uh, at at my conversations with mentors and leaders, you know, I could run really fast, but at Microsoft, I could never run as far and wide as I needed to. I needed to learn how to scale. And while I might give a great presentation or be able to talk about the value of cloud-based email and some of these other things that were happening in the late late 2010s, early 2010, 9, 8, 10, was I needed to figure out a way to do it through partners. But no one wanted, most customers didn't want their first conversation to be with a partner. So I kind of killed two birds with one stone. I was able to get a bunch of partners 
Microsoft badges when they were able to articulate and tell certain stories. So we call, ended up calling it a virtual technology solution specialist role. And it took off. It became a really big deal because partners loved it because they got access to Microsoft, literally physical buildings and some of their IP, meaning presentations, early tools and things like that to sell stuff. And we loved it because we could convey to a customer that we we had these business partners that were had Microsoft.com email addresses that were going to help deliver some of these stories. So in a matter of 12 months, I went from me in Central Region to having this idea to, I want to say, hundreds of physical partner people that were badged by Microsoft and had Microsoft email addresses that were delivering content, technical presentations, 100, 200, 300 level conversations to customers, never using their company's name, never saying they were with their company, just still responding with their Microsoft email address, seeing everybody else at Microsoft that were part of was part of the deal. And ultimately, they obviously got the opportunity to work on some of those projects. So it was it was like a win win from customer partner to Microsoft. It was it was a great great thing, and I'm pretty sure it's still implemented today at Microsoft. Some 12 years later, um, from my original vision, because it is truly scaling the business and something that was a game changer. A lot of people told me on first plot first pass, you'll never get this past legal. Even legal said you'll never get this yeah. past us, and I said, "What?" what? I mean, we're, you're inviting people into the Microsoft building that were not employees, right? Yeah, and they had a, a badge; deal. they were getting in. They could, they were walking right. the halls, and we just created more rules and more boundaries on what they what they had access to and what they were doing. And um, back in those days, Microsoft still had smart card access for all the all the IP we had on our network, so we were able to create some security groups and. While it might seem nearly impossible, there's I would say there's nothing that's impossible. So if you have ideas like that that could go big in your companies, don't be hesitant to share them, brainstorm, partner with people. I got a lot of the, the real technology solution specialists involved and ask them what resources do you keep going to to get your stuff and how do we share those and maybe it was public groups or OneDrive that was just coming out at the time. Long story short, it went it went viral before viral was cool. Hundreds of partners got involved. Hundreds of partners met customers they would have never met. Microsoft started working with partners better in Central Region than they had for years. Um, and customers were getting the outcomes they wanted. So it was a win-win-win. And I think I got recognition and applause from people just because it wasn't something that I gave up on. And then everybody started to scale. So it was a pretty cool project to be a part of and, and one that I'm really proud of in my career. I, I just recently spoke to someone that is uh, starting a new practice uh, at a company, and we talked about this in pretty good detail. And I think the key here is this goes back to kind of Bobby your your passion around partnering and, and being a great partner, and the scale that that provides to you. And I think that was probably the thing that stood out the most to me here is the business challenge that Microsoft was experiencing is that we were going through such tremendous growth at that time, and, and Microsoft obviously continues going at uh, tremendous growth, but. We just didn't have the the folks that we needed to deliver demonstrations and to help customers understand the stack. And the unique thing that these folks offered was not only a good technical depth of what Microsoft could offer, but they also understood it from a deployment front as well. Since they worked for Microsoft deployment partners, they typically either had a hand in developing statements of work or had done delivery themselves. 
So there was some good training around it, and it gave the partners, to your point, what they wanted, which was introductions into new companies. And while they did it kind of white-labeled as, as they were working through Microsoft, oftentimes we would give them kind of first right of refusal on the deployment of that deal. So it was a big win-win for us, for the partner. Uh, it helped scale the business. It really kind of changed the approach to uh, mid-market sales. No doubt. And I guess one last real-world best practice that I would share um because you brought up partnering again, we've talked a lot about partnering was really using, I hate to say it, but really using partners to do the work that I needed to do. Right. It really did create a win-win for all of us. And it wasn't always the easiest path, but it was one that, that I got a lot of heavy lifting done for me. And the other pain wasn't necessarily the work of constructing the proposals or the evaluation plans or the work. Cause I was putting that on partners but I was teaching people how to be better sellers. I was still in control of the deal and they were doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, I think too often I see reps inside of vendor type companies doing all the work because they want a span of control. And you, I think you can have that through partners if you're good at what you do. Um, don't forget to use those guys and girls on those teams, not because they're maybe, I don't think they're always going to be better than me or better than you, but they need to get better and they're only going to get better if you give them those at bats and you teach them how to do the things they need to do. I have relationships that go back 20 years because I help people learn how to do things. Um, mentoring a guy right now that probably disliked me a lot in 2001 and 2002 who was on my team, but highly respects what what's come since then. And it's, it's because I helped him back then that he's asking for help today. So, um, Spread that and, and don't hesitate to help people uh, as a best practice, too. I think it it's a, it's a great point. I think it kind of if you have aspirations to get into leadership, that's really what that job is all about is, is scaling, scaling the business. You're, you're, you're that kind of point of, of pivot in terms of how you scale the business. And this is it's a great entry into it. So, for example, if you if you work for the vendor and you have a reseller, why not? teach the reseller reseller or show the reseller, you know, if it's a new, a new person, how to build out that evaluation plan. And man, if you could trust, you know, I, I know at, at, at Microsoft in the early days, we were looking for resellers that we could help us scale. We were moving so fast. We wanted them helping with contracts and, you know, getting, getting next steps arranged. And if, man, if I, if I did a better job as a younger seller at Microsoft at the vendor side, coaching the account executives on that eval plan, I could have scaled my time and sold so much more. Well, imagine if they're part of your eval plan. Okay, we're going to do this. Yeah. We're going to prove these things. Then you're going to then partner ABC is going to provide the contract to you that I have given them. You'll agree with them that it looks good. You know, you just could eliminate yep. a lot of the back and forth that you were doing and put the partner in a position to to provide the value that they should be providing, but maybe everybody's been blocking them from being able to provide that value. Good deal. Well, we want to thank Tech Sales Lab for uh, sponsoring this episode, Series 16, Part 3, Deals and Lessons Learned. This is all about sharing best practices. If you're not familiar with Tech Sales Lab, there are two sections to it. The first is the pathway, and that's effectively if you've got a friend or a colleague, somebody that wants to get into tech sales, they just don't know the path because there's no college degree for this. Uh, look, Send them over to techsaleslab.com. The pathway programs can help them either get a certification in the program or uh, just do a fast start into how to get into technology sales. 
And then for those that are already in tech sales and you're looking to uh, to up your game, or let's say you want to get into leadership for their first time job, uh, join the master programs. There are uh, programs on uh, how to read a 10K. There's a lot of great stuff there and there's more to come. So with that, thanks everyone for listening. Have a great week. As always, average is the enemy. Thanks for listening. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Sales Show. Until next week, average is the enemy.